I'm Dave Bear. I'm Carrie. Um, and in 2010, we gave birth to Josiah. Um, and we would just love to share um, God's faithfulness and uh, his goodness to us. Uh, so Josiah was born in the summer of 2010. Uh, he's our first child. And before he was born, we found out that uh, he had a couple of things that were abnormal about his health. Um, a portion of his brain that was missing. He had had a stroke before birth. Um, he had stopped growing too early. Um, and then after he was born, a few days after he was born, we found out that he had Down syndrome. And then um, we found out that he had a blood clotting disorder and a bunch of different things. And it was a roller coaster <laughs> to say the least. Um, so we spent a lot of time in the hospital, a lot of time at doctor's appointments. It, it's amazing um, even when we started that young as uh, what we were married a couple years yeah. at that point and walking into this new season in life, um, how God was starting to shape us, bringing us along one step at a time, even though we knew medically challenging wise that it was gonna be a season. We just relied on our father to bring us along. We, we had nothing to offer, but God has everything to offer us. This is our first kid and you never go into yeah. having a family anticipating that your children are going to have medical needs or differing needs or that there's anything different about them. And so when we found out about Josiah's different diagnosis and stuff like that, it was just, I don't know, a roller coaster of, of emotions of depending on God and while grieving what we thought would be. Um, because you're sitting there holding this tiny little baby that you're so incredibly in love with and mourning what you thought life was gonna look like. But God remained faithful. I remember after the first diagnosis that we got, I remember getting up early in the morning and I couldn't sleep and opening up my Bible and just kind of praying that God would just speak and comfort my heart and calm my heart and open up to a passage where it talked about even though the mountains are falling into the sea and the and the waters are, are churning and foaming that God was faithful and it was exactly what I needed to hear and it it just kind of keeps building like that that through Joe's life we have all of these hiccups and all of these hard moments but God remains faithful two weeks after his fourth birthday Joe got diagnosed with leukemia um, and at the time we had added to our family, we had a two-year-old and a five-week-old at the time. And um, I remember getting the phone call from his doctor. She called to give the, the, the news that no parent ever wants to hear. And she's on the other end of the phone crying. And I'm, I'm sitting there just really weirdly peaceful about hearing it. It really was that peace that passes understanding kind of stuff. I remember when Josiah was going through his cancer treatment. Josiah, I, he's, he must have been maybe at the end of his treatment, hardcore, just, um, you know, um, his body was just rejecting a lot of um, the chemo. And the doctors and the staff knew, you know, this chunk was going to be the trial part and rough and on anybody. And uh, I was at work. Um, and Carrie was at, at the hospital yet. And I get a call saying, uh, from, from you saying that, you know, Joe isn't doing so well. Um, you know, his, his heartbeats, you know, slowing down a little bit. And the staff there, you know, was encouraging, hey, let's, let's get some time together. Um, but the image, of course, you go to, worst case scenarios and I'm thinking at work my son's dying um, we get off the phone and I, I've never driven from Sheboygan Falls to Children's in Milwaukee so fast in my life <laughs> um, 
I remember going down the road and literally screaming at God. Um, but in the moment, in my frustration, in my doubts, um, I let God have it. I let God have my heart. In that same moment, God spoke to me and said, how much more do I love Josiah? I have you. It's okay. I have your son. I have your family. I think, you know, what we've been talking about in church and following through the reading plan and watching the Israelites and, um, you know, Moses talking about remember these things and talk about them. I think that for us that's become our mantra, our way of living, a, a good reminder of revisiting where God has brought us. Because as Joe continues to grow, there there's new things all the time. Like, <laughs> we, we joke about it. This kid never gets a break. It, it's God's faithfulness to us. And not only that, we get to read that in the Word and see it, but we get to live it out. Like, we get to have that to look back as the journey and the testimony of look where God has brought us. Look at this high, look at this low, and look at his faithfulness. And it's amazing to go back and be able to look back and remember and go, but God has always been faithful. He has never let us down. And there's been scary times, obviously, and there's been hard times, but his faithfulness has always continued. It's just so important to, like you said, to remember. It's so important to remember um, what you've went through, what you've come out of. Um, and I think we try to hold on to that as best we, we can, even with current stuff that we have growing with Joe and seeing him grow more in the Lord th than yesterday or a week ago yeah. and seeing God doing such amazing things through him, through us, through our family, as now our entire family grows together um, and enjoying life. Thanks, Dave and Carrie, for sharing that incredibly vulnerable and powerful story, pointing to the faithfulness of God in the midst of trial and challenges. Psalm 13, written by King David in the midst of his own vexation. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken." I think about that psalm and so many other psalms that David wrote when he was hiding in a cave, fearing for his life, as his former hero, King Saul, was looking to kill him. Because he was jealous, because of his pride, he was angry at David. And David, pouring out his heart, as I hear Dave Bear sharing the story of how he's driving down to Milwaukee, Driving down to Children's, I think exhausted and frustrated from the situation, talked about yelling at God in the car. And it made me think of chapters like this. And what I love, though, is after you see David bear his heart, just bear his soul before the Lord, say things to God that I feel like I wouldn't have the courage to say. Like, I feel like I wouldn't be able to say, God, how long will you forget me? But in our moments of, of suffering and weakness, I think God's not surprised to hear things like that come out of our mouth because he knows they're in our hearts and minds anyways. And so it's best to just be honest with the Lord and bear our soul and watch what happens to David when he does. I think it's the same thing that happened to David as he was driving down. He said in verse 5, after all that venting, he says, But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord 
because he has dealt bountifully with me. Doesn't that sound just like the way they finished that story? Talking about how God has been faithful all the way through. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you that in the midst of whatever we might find ourselves in, David was hiding for his life. His hero had just thrown spears at him. We see from the Bear family, their suffering of what they have gone through as a family, caring for their child, wanting what's best for their child. That, Lord, you're not surprised when we're just raw and authentic and bear our souls before you. Lord, I ask that you would just minister to anyone today. I, I don't know who's here and what people might be going through, but I know that you know and that there's probably a reason that you had us play that story today, share that story today. So whoever needed to hear that, to receive encouragement, to, to look on the faithfulness of God, and, and to be encouraged by that today, Lord, I ask by the Holy Spirit that you would do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, many of you may be new here, and we are doing something as a church family. Last week we had Easter, Holy Week. It was a wonderful, awesome week and uh, an incredible time together as a church family celebrating the resurrection of Christ. And I recognize a lot of times there's a lot of new people the week after Easter. So if you're new here, we just want to say welcome. We hope that you are encouraged by your time together with us today, worshiping the Lord. And uh, we're doing something as a church family that we're calling the Year of the Bible, where we're taking January to December, going Genesis to Revelation, reading all the main thread, the high points of Scripture, um, reading the story of the Bible. And you're welcome to jump in that with us if you want to go into the reading plan with us. You can grab that at the info desk once service is out. Just jump in on week 17 is what the reading will be for this week. Having said that, this last week we read week 16 and we're reading about the transition from Saul to David, how Israel had wanted a king. Israel wanted a king to lead them and the prophet Samuel was grieved by this, but God told him, hey, you know what? Never, don't worry about that. Give the people what they want. And I've appointed this man, Saul, to be king. And Saul, as we are introduced to Saul in the story, it's interesting the things that it points out about him. It's not that he's super wise or that he's a morally upright man or that he's faithful to God. It says he's really tall and handsome. It's like Saul is going to be the first king of Israel and everyone looks at him and goes, yeah, that dude's super handsome and really tall. Like two years from now, when the election cycle rolls around again, when we all need the grace of God and the Holy Spirit, Lord help us, can you imagine conversations with people saying like, hey, did you watch the debate last night? So-and-so stood for this policy, and they were really against this, and they were for this. Yeah, but did you see how tall the other guy was? By the way, this other candidate's really ugly. Sadly, I think some people might vote that way nowadays, but uh, we'll pray for them. Those are the things that are pointed out about Saul. Nonetheless, Saul is anointed as the first king of Israel. He starts his reign, so to speak, really well. He's doing good. He's obeying God. And he's conquering the enemies that God has sent him to conquer, like the Ammonites. His son, uh, Jonathan, goes out to conquer and fight the Philistines. And they have some victories. They have some ups and downs throughout that process. But then comes a time where God remembers a nation, the Amalekites, and that this was the first nation that rose up against Israel as they were on their way out of Egypt. And so God commands Saul to go wipe them out. And Saul goes and fights them, and he only partially obeys. Now, parents, I'm sure you can empathize with this a little bit. When you tell your kids to do something, and they only kind of do it. Like, I grew up with a phrase in my house where my dad would say, partial obedience is disobedience. And wouldn't you know, that whole thing where they tell you, you turn into your parents, you find yourself saying some of the things that they say, say, girls, I don't want you to obey later, I want you to obey right away. And partial obedience is disobedience, we want to obey. And so we see Saul get commands from God to wipe them out, to judge them, 
And he only partially obeys. He lets the king live. He spares the flocks. And we see around 200-ish people are left alive. So he only partially obeys God. And God talks to Samuel, the prophet, and says, Hey, your boy Saul has disobeyed me. And Samuel is grieved. He begins crying and weeping before the Lord over this. And he goes and talks to Saul and calls him out for it. And Saul begins making excuses presenting all these excuses to God as to why he didn't obey, but even beyond that also says, well, I did obey. And he highlights, shines the the light on the things that he kind of did right while leaving in the dark the things that he didn't obey in, that partial obedience. And Samuel continues to confront him and says, then what is this bleeding of the sheep that I hear? And he says, oh, well, you know, I kept some of those things, uh, you know, to offer to the Lord as sacrifices. That's good, right? And Samuel says to Saul, God wants obedience more than sacrifices. Why why should you have to offer sacrifices when you could just offer obedience? He says, I desire the obedience rather than the sacrifices. And again, Samuel the prophet is weeping over Saul, over his sin, over his rebellion. And finally, in chapter 16, We find that he's ready to anoint a new king, and he says to Samuel, God says to Samuel, why are you still grieving over Saul? I'm done with him. He says, I've rejected him. Why are you still grieving over him? Go to Bethlehem to a man named Jesse. He has a son who I'm going to make new king. And then we see some contrasts between David and Saul in the way that David is found and anointed. Remember what was said of Saul When he was appointed, wow, this guy is the most handsome guy in the land, and he's head and shoulders taller than everyone else. Well, when David is ready to be anointed, or or when Samuel goes to Jesse's family, and he says, hey, God wants to make one of your sons king. It's a good day for you. Bring him on out. And as Jesse would assume, he goes from firstborn down the line, thinking, This is probably the one who the Lord wants to anoint. He brings up Eliab, his oldest, his firstborn. He's going, if God's going to pick one of my kids to be king, well, it's going to be Eliab. And let's see, just really quick, I didn't even put this in in the reading plan for the screens and all that, but in uh, chapter 16, uh, verse 6, he says, When they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance. Or on the height of his stature. What were the two things that Saul was was noted for when he was anointed? He's handsome and tall. Tall, dark, and handsome. Okay, it doesn't say dark, but that's our phrase, okay? So he's tall and he's handsome. And right here, Eliab is brought out saying, surely this is the one. And Samuel says to him, or the Lord says to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I've rejected him. For the Lord does not, or the Lord sees not as man sees. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And David is a king who would later be called multiple times the man after God's own heart. And so Saul and David, again, we see some contrast in the fact that when Saul is confronted by the prophet with his sin, what does Saul do? Oh, no, I I obey God. He makes excuses and he blames shifts. One thing that we'll read in the weeks to come is that when David is confronted with his sin by the prophet, what does he do? He's broken. He weeps. He laments. He rips his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes, grieving his sin rather than doing what Saul did in his pride, making excuses and justifying his sin. He admits it, acknowledges it, and from it we get Psalm 51, where David prays the prayer of repentance that is so beautiful. He says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Return to me the joy of your salvation. Again, when you juxtapose Saul against David, we begin to see the stark contrast of why God loves and keeps David because of what's in his heart, the humility that brought him to repentance. 
David is anointed king in chapter 16, but he's not immediately installed as king because Saul is still in place. And lo and behold, we find ourselves in chapter 17 with one of the most popular and famous stories in all of the Bible. You don't even have to be a churchgoer to have heard the allegory, so to speak, of David and Goliath. And even unchristianized people, people who are not familiar with scripture, are still familiar with the concept of David and Goliath. You can watch March Madness and hear about David and Goliath. You saw the mighty peacocks, if you watch March Madness. I, I forget the school's name, but the mascot was the peacocks. That was the the 16, or no, not 16 seed, the 15 seed that beat all these really low seeds. Every time as they continue on, you hear about the Cinderella story, but you hear about this David, the smaller, conquering, the mightier, greater Goliath. Let's look in 1 Samuel chapter 17 today, starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekah, in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in the line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits um, and a span. That's about nine, nine feet, nine inches. It's pretty stinking tall. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he, had a bronze er, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze uh, slung between his shoulders. The shaft, shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. That's about 15 pounds. And his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, I, I want to pause just for a second. Because it's not uncommon to be terrified at a nine foot, nine inches dude with a spear that's huge. The spearhead alone weighing 15 pounds. Crying out these things to make you a little scared. But is it right to be scared if you remember everything that God's done leading up to this point. Like, is Goliath more powerful, more scary, more terrifying than Pharaoh and the 600 chariots of Egypt that are chasing down, bearing down on the Israelites as they're approaching the Red Sea? Is Goliath more terrifying than entire armies that have risen up against the people of Israel as they're wandering through the wilderness and approaching the promised land, or the armies that they've already conquered going into the promised land. Yeah, he's nine feet, nine inches, but he's not greater than anything that they have already faced and all the deliverance that God has already given them. And notice it doesn't just say the Israelites were terrified, but it even mentions Saul himself. If there were a person in this story who should have stood up and said, how dare you, and gone out face to face with Goliath, it should have been Saul. But he was afraid. He was terrified. And he stayed in his tent with his knees knocking. Picking up in verse 12. Now David was the son of the Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn, and the next to him Abinadab, and the third Shema. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth to Saul to feed his uh, father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 
days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. 40 days. 40 days, this guy came out and mocked Israel. And in so doing, mocked their God. Verse 17. And Jesse said to David, or Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these 10 cheeses to the commander of their household, or I'm sorry, cheeses to the commander of their thousand. Hopefully it was Wisconsin cheddar. See if your brothers are well and bring some token for them or from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose in the, in the morning, left the sheep with the keeper, and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in the charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. That's what's different this time. Forty days he's been doing this. Finally, took someone who had conviction and who God was and what God was able to do to hear. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Modern translation. What do he say? He's going to do what? For who is the uncircumcised Philistine? Notice David's tone. Everyone else is just terrified at how big this dude is. The people said to David, have you seen this guy? David's response is, one, what did the king say? And two, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Saying, who is this man who does not have covenant with God? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of of the living God. And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. David is ticked off that this has been going on for 40 days. This man defying God and the armies of God saying, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Again, modern translation, David saying, who does he think he is? And David also is probably thinking, who are all of you? Why has nobody done anything yet? Why has no one gone out to him? 28, now Eliab, his oldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. For you have come down to see the battle. He's saying, you just wanted to come down for a show. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way and, and the people answered him again as before. He's basically going around saying, is it true? Is all of this true what I'm hearing? That the king is going to do this for somebody who conquers him? And is it true that this has been happening? Verse 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for him. David, Saul's like, Oh, there's a guy who's actually considering this? Because so far, all of us have been shaking in our boots. Verse 32, And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, uh, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Saul looks at the outward appearance of David. Says, you, you gotta be kidding me, little boy. You're just a little boy, and this dude has been killing people since he was a little boy. Scurry on. Verse 34, but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, 
I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. Notice David doesn't say, he doesn't say, you know, I killed a lion and I killed a bear. And so I'm, I'm a pretty bad dude, okay? He doesn't say, I've proven capable. I've been doing a little bit of working out on the side, okay? I've been honing my sling skills. I've been prepping for this day. He was not thinking about his own ability. He wasn't seeing the same things that everyone else was seeing. Everyone else was looking at this nine feet, nine inches warrior. David is looking at a man who is defying the armies of the living God. And so David recalls and recounts what's happened in his own life. I don't care how bad and tough you think you are. I don't, I'm pretty sure I'm confident Nobody in this room has killed a lion or a bear with their bare hands. Show of hands? Nope. Okay, didn't think so. And David's saying, I have already, while watching my father's sheep, had a lion come and take away a sheep, and I went after it. Okay, pause. We wouldn't do that. We'd be like, shucks, one less sheep. Or maybe we'd go after it with a gun. David goes after it and recounts it by saying, I took that bad boy by the beard and struck it. Okay, you're crazy. No, he trusted in the Lord. Because what did he say to Saul? He said, the Lord delivered me from the paws of the lion and the bear. He didn't say, I'm the bad mamma jamma who did it all by myself. I know the right technique. I've been working out. I've been preparing for this. I've been studying the tactics and habits of lions and bears. I developed a good strategy, made sure I came at the right angle to capture its weakness. None of that. He said, the Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear. And he said, this Philistine will be no different. Where were we? I lost my place. I'll just pick up in verse 35. I went after him and struck him and delivered him out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David, and David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go. And the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor and put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. Essentially, I'm going to start summarizing for time's sake. Saul's trying to go, okay, if we're going to send you out there to fight the Philistine, you need the best of the best. You need the best armor, my armor. You need the best sword, my sword. Here, if you're going to go, wear my stuff. And David's like, no, nah, man, this is not going to work. Again, David's showing one more time. His confidence was not in the right gear or his strength or his skills or anything like that. Yeah, he did go pick five smooth stones. But again, what did David say to Saul? He said, the Lord is the one who's going to do this. And so I want to fast forward and jump ahead a little bit. Let's go to verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, hopefully you guys have your Bibles or your smartphones because I didn't put these into the notes. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air or to the beasts of the field. This guy's saying, little boy, you are not taking me seriously. And he begins cursing him and mocking him, saying, I'm about to turn you over to the ravens and the beasts. And then David rep replied, little David, 
Short little David to nine foot nine inches, Goliath says this. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. David, again, is not looking on the outward stuff. He's saying, you come to me with a sword, a spear, a javelin. I come to you in the name of the Lord, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you. Who will deliver? The Lord will deliver you into my hand. And I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead body of the host of Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth, here we go. Why? Is this not the phrase that we've seen throughout the entire Old Testament that we continue to see here again? That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and with spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into my hand. David, all these natural things that everyone is looking at is not the same stuff that David is looking at. This is why God appointed David, anointed David, chose David because he knew that this was a man after God's own heart who was living for God's glory, not his own. And we see it in this moment, this watershed moment in the history of Israel and in David's life. One thing, a few things we can take away from this. And before I get into this, I want to quickly summarize something uh, John Calvin talked about the three uses of the law, and I want to point this out because one thing that I've, I've, I've presented a lot of caution around is reading ourselves into the Bible story, where what we do when we read the story of David is we go, okay, I'm David, and Goliath is my debt, and I need to take up my food, five smooth stones of XYZ and make some formula out of Old Testament scriptures where we try to hurl something at our debt, our mountain, our giant, whatever it is, and that we're David and we're victorious over it. And that's not what we want to do. But that doesn't mean, because we're not David, that doesn't mean, though, that there are not things we cannot glean and learn from David. Because that, that, that ideology would have you look at Joseph and go, oh, well, I'm not Joseph, so... I can't look at Joseph's story and learn that I should run away if someone tries to seduce me. Yeah, absolutely. You should learn that lesson from that and you should do it. If someone is defying God, you should stand bold and confidently and strong for God. Maybe not the whole floor, the, the stone at their head thing, um, but stand confident and strong. Yeah. See, that's why we're not the same. Okay. And so the third use of the law that John Calvin points out, there's three uses. One being it's a mirror that confronts us, shows us our sin, shows us our need for a savior. The second being the civil use, meaning the law teaches us uh, um, and, it, and it limits evil. The third use of the law, and this is what we see and things that we need to keep in mind as we're reading stories like this, is that there absolutely are lessons, morals, um, guidelines that we can take from stories like this. One thing that I think we can take away from David's story is that God is preparing us even when we don't know it. God is preparing us even when we don't know it. Do you think when David was fighting a lion, he was thinking, this is really going to help me someday in battle when I fight some nine foot nine, nine foot nine Philistine. No, he was probably thinking, this sucks. <laughs> but he fights the lion, he fights the bear, and God used what had happened in his past, the deliverance that the Lord had given David, again, the deliverance that the Lord had given David in those two circumstances gives David the confidence that God will yet again deliver him in this circumstance. I can remember when I was in college back in 2003, 2004 in Arkansas when I was studying video production, when I knew since I was like 12 years old that I felt like the Lord had called me into full-time ministry. And I was studying uh, video production at this college and it, I could go into all sorts of details that would make you go, wow. But lo and behold, I'm there. I'm, I finished my first year of school and I'm thinking, why, why am I in the middle of nowhere, Southern Arkansas, studying video production when I feel like God has called me into full-time ministry? And I was questioning that, but I felt like the Lord had me there for some reason that I couldn't see and know. And when I finished there, 
I felt like it was time for me to go to Bible school after that. And the Lord put a certain school on my heart. And I called my parents who lived in Texas at the time when I was in Arkansas. And I said, hey, uh, mom, dad, or mom, I called my mom and said, hey, I'm praying about school. This certain school popped up in my head. She says, oh, you know, your dad's there right now. I was like, no, why is dad there? And she's like, well, the youth pastor got sick. So your dad took the kids to camp. It was also a summer camp. He's like, so your dad took the kids to camp. I was like, oh yeah, that sounds dad. All right, well, you guys, you guys keep praying for me. We'll keep praying. We'll see what the Lord does. And then my mom gets off the phone, calls my dad, says, hey, Terry, guess what? Stephen just told me that he's praying about this school. And dad starts laughing, says, I knew it. And so my dad starts talking to the director of the Bible school there and says, hey, my son's praying about coming here. He just uh, finished school for video production. He can preach. He can lead praise and worship. And he starts telling him all this stuff. And my dad didn't know that the director of the media, the media ministry at that place was standing behind the director of the Bible school and said, wait, your son just finished school for what? He's like, well, he just finished school for video production. And then he says, well, you need to talk to me. Lo and behold, they had just fired their video guy for a moral failure. And so we connected things. I had been working 51 hours a week as a pharmacy technician, paying for school and, and paying for my housing and paying for living. And I had no money saved. I had no way to pay for Bible school. I, was just, I didn't know. I was just confident that God was going to figure it all out. And this guy calls me and we talk. I'm like, yeah, I really feel like that's where God wants me to go to school. But at the same time, man, I've been working and paying for my life with my work. I don't have any money to pay for it. And he said, let me call you back. He calls me back 30 minutes later and says, I'll tell you what, you go to school in the morning, in the afternoon you work in our studio as our media director, our video director, and then we'll give you a full ride. Housing, books, food, all that stuff. Now rewind to a year prior when I was in a moment of like, why am I doing this? Why am I in the middle of nowhere studying video production? God's sovereign. He knows what he's doing. And what we can see is that God is preparing us for things that we don't even know. You might be going through something in your life that you're sitting here going, God, why? Like David, why have, how long will you let this happen to me? How long will you let my enemies surround me? You could be in a season like what Dave and Carrie were in where, where you have moments where you're wanting to grip the steering wheel and scream at God. And in those moments, we need to remember the faithfulness of God that has already been in our lives. And, and do what we'll see David do in a few chapters later, where it says David encouraged himself in the Lord. And so one, we see that God is always preparing us even when we don't know it. When David was killing a lion and a bear that were attacking his flock, he wasn't thinking, oh, here's a way that, uh, uh, that can prepare my destiny. No, he was thinking, oh no, a lion. Oh no, a bear. He was simply being faithful to care for his father's flock. He was being faithful where he was. And that, that is something that we all need to take away from this today. If you're in that season of why, when, how, where, all that kind of stuff, all those questions that all of us face at different times in our lives, are you staying faithful with whatever God has put in front of you? Or are you just sitting there looking at why, how come, when, how long, Lord? He was being faithful. Another thing King David wasn't thinking, or he wasn't king yet. Another thing David wasn't thinking was, hey, you know what? If I can kill these beasts, I'll be king of Israel someday. He wasn't thinking about that. David didn't have some kingly aspirations, even driving his willingness to step forward and fight the giant. We have no account in this situation where David's going, Maybe this is my path to become king. Remember, he'd already been anointed by Samuel at this point. Why, what was David's professed cause for the fight? He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? What brought David into the fight was, was a passion and a love for the name and renown of God. Who does he think he is to defy the armies of the living God? You come to me with a sword and a spear. I come to you in the name of the living God who will deliver you into my hands. I'll kill you and cut off your head. But the Lord will do it and all the world will know that God of Israel is the true God. 
Another thing that we actually do see from David himself is that he understood that when he killed the lion and the bear, that it was the Lord who delivered him from the paw of those beasts. It was the same thing with the hand of Goliath. David was confident in the Lord because he had already seen the deliverance of the Lord. Now, I know what some of you might be thinking. Okay, well, Stephen, I haven't had the bear situation in my life. I haven't seen the faithfulness of God with the lion in my life. Let me show you one way where you have all seen the deliverance of the Lord, not from a bear, not from a lion, but from the serpent. In case you're ever wondering, how, how can I throw my confidence on what the Lord has done when I haven't had that bear or that lion moment in my life to give me confidence of what God has done? You can look in scripture at Jesus Christ crushing the head of the serpent on the cross. We celebrated last week, Good Friday, where he died on the cross for our sins. And we know that was him conquering the eternal, or not eternal, but the evil serpent, Satan. Conquering sin, conquering death, raising from the dead. And Romans 8 even tells us, that if he gave up his own son for us, will he not also freely give us all things? And so if you're sitting here going, okay, I, I see that, but how can I throw my confidence that God's gonna be faithful to me when I feel like I haven't seen his faithfulness in my life? Have you seen the faithfulness of the fact that he has conquered the greatest problem you will ever face, which is your sin? There's no greater problem. Your money, your health, your relationships, your career, your job, stock markets, all the kind of stuff that could be perceived as problems in your life are minuscule compared to the mountain of sin. Jesus Christ conquered and proved faithful in your life to conquer the Goliath in your life that is sin. The enemy that made you sit there going, <laughs> the death in your face, Jesus conquered on the cross, and in the empty tomb. So we can today confidently go, he's got me, he's got me, he's got me. Today's sermon title was called An Unlikely Hero. And most people would hear this story and go, oh, the unlikely hero is David. You know, little David, big Goliath. He shouldn't be the hero, but he is. When David, the man after God's own heart, shows the true hero of the story is God. God is the hero of David's story, the hero of the Bible story, and the hero of our story. David's not the hero. Now, did he behave valiantly and honorably? Yes. But the Savior is not David. If David goes into the battle on his own strength going, yeah, maybe I do need the best armor. Maybe I should think about the way I go about this. Maybe I should take up the king's stuff. He fails. But his confidence wasn't in his own ability. It was in the deliverance of the Lord that he had seen and the deliverance of the Lord that he knew he would see. God is the hero of David's story the hero of the whole Bible, and the hero of our story. In fact, David is only one more chapter in God's story. Likewise, we are honored to play a part in God's story. David is one chapter in God's story. We are a chapter in God's story. And if we look at this life, if we look at our lives as if we're building our story, that God is in this for us trying to make our story great rather than he's brought us into a time in his story, then it's going to affect the way that we live. See, we exist for God's purposes and for God's glory. The sooner we realize this, accept this, and align our lives with this, the more fulfillment we will have in serving God's purposes by being a part of his story and living for his glory. Didn't even plan to rhyme that. <laughs> Pursuits for our own pleasures are too weak, too weak as we seek to answer our deepest hungers with pacifiers and worldly toys. Pursuits for our own glory are too meager. It's like the moon saying, hey, look how bright I am. The moon's not bright. It just reflects the light of the sun, right? You go out on a night with a full moon and you can actually see without lights on. You're not going, man, the moon is such a powerful source of light. No, it reflects the powerful source of light, which is the sun, 
That's what we do when we live for our own glories. We sit here like the moon going, look how bright I am. No, the sun's bright. Our own joy placed in anything other than the purposes of God, the glory of God, and the presence of God places our eggs in a basket that will be kicked around, stomped on, and rolled over by the cares of this world and the sufferings of this life. But when we live for the purposes of God, our suffering and our trials have meaning, tests to prove our faith in God and God's faithfulness to us. When we live for the glory of God, the triumphs in our lives are opportunities to declare God has delivered me. God has been faithful. God has not forsaken me. God is enough for me. It is a training and a practicing for what we will be doing for eternity, which is reveling in God. And we are the people on the earth who get the foretaste that we get to taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. The unlikely hero of this story that gets the glory is not the little red-headed shepherd boy David, but the God of all time, faithful to his people when someone is willing to place their trust in him and give the glory back to him. God, I pray today from your word that we would see again a continuation of the truth that you are committed to the glory of your name, the renown of your name, and that's good for us because your mercy in our lives gives you glory. Your grace in our lives gives you glory. Your love for us gives you glory. Your forgiveness of us, your mercy gives you glory. Your faithfulness in the life of Dave and Carrie Bear and the story of Josiah gives glory to you. Your faithfulness to your people as you delivered them from oppressors, Pharaoh and Egypt, from evil kingdoms in Canaanite or in Canaan, when you delivered them from Goliath, gives glory to you. God, I, I ask and I pray today that you would help us cast off the worldly programming to look out for number one, to be all about ourselves, to build our name, our rapport, our reputation, pursue our desires, our own goals, our own initiatives, and to live for the glory of your name. Lord, when we do, I believe that you remind us of what you have done and give us confidence to trust you with whatever may come our way. Lord, I pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would help us bear the same confidence that David displayed, who is truly a type of Jesus, a foreshadowing of Jesus, who saved his entire nation from an oppressor, from a tyrant, and delivered them for the glory of your name. Lord, help us have the same confidence in you trusting that if you have already conquered Satan on the cross, there is nothing else in our lives that you cannot and will not take care of in your infinite wisdom, in the way that is best for us and in the way that gives you most glory. And if we find ourselves in those seasons of suffering or grief or sorrow or questions, Lord, I ask that you would help us just be honest and bear our soul to you and trust you only you can give us the grace to be able to confidently trust you. We can't do it on our own. In Jesus' name, amen.